You are listening to Gangland Wire, hosted by former Kansas City Police Intelligence Unit Detective Gary Jenkins. Welcome, all you wiretappers out there. Back here in the studio of Gangland Wire, I have on the uh, Zoom a couple of guests. Uh, our our regular guest, uh, Camulus Cam Robinson from uh, Chicago area. I, I Cam, I can never remember the name of that town that you live in. I have to apologize. No, it's uh, it's it's Munster, the first uh, first town right across. I, I work in the loop, but as people around here will tell you, I, I ain't from Chicago. I bet that's a fun drive every day. <laughs> hey, anyhow, uh, and you hear laughing in the background, uh, Paul Whitcomb. Now, Paul is an attorney in, up in Illinois. He uh, served as a law clerk and saw some pretty interesting outfit trials, as he's going to tell us a little bit about today. He's involved, in, and so is Cam involved with the Killers, Kings, and Clowns Facebook pages and a YouTube channel with a man named John Tui, and they've interviewed a lot of mob people up there, especially on their YouTube channel, and they've got a whole bunch of different Killers, Kings, and Clowns Facebook interest pages, all kinds of different, you know, New York mob, uh, five families, uh, Chicago outfit, and, and I can't remember them all. Just go to your Facebook and search for Killers, Kings, and Clowns. And folks, our other guest, Paul Whitcomb, Paul was a, uh, a clerk in a uh, federal court in his younger days as an attorney, and he happened to see the Lenny Patrick trial. Lenny Patrick is an outfit guy who ended up turning on uh, Gus Alex and Sam Carlise in a case I believe was the uh, Rincon Indian tribe or Indian casino case, I believe. Is that right, Paul? That's actually the three different cases. Um, Rincon was in San Diego, and that was Sam Carlisi and John DeFranzo and Don Angelini and some other big names. Then Gus Alex and Sam Carlisi were Patrick's cases. Okay, and and that was a Chicago case then. Yes, they Chicago sure were. case. So he was uh, he was a witness to that, and he uh, learned a whole lot about Lenny Patrick, and and he is a mob historian with a particular emphasis on uh, uh, the Chicago area and the outfit. So welcome, Paul and and Cam, of course. Thank you. It's good to be here. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, Cam, why don't you get us going? Uh, let, let's go back and. Let people learn a little bit about Lenny Patrick. He's not exactly a household name. He's not exactly Al Capone, in which he's had about 10 different books written on, and I don't know how many podcasts <laughs> done on. I've done about four or five on something around Capone myself. I, I think the main thing working against Patrick, as far as people not knowing about him, is that, is that his name doesn't end in a vowel. I think, if, I think if, if, there's a lot of hang-up about when they talk about Chicago and the family secrets, everybody says, well, uh, a made guy never rolled over in Chicago. Well, I think if you look at the hierarchy of things, who was higher ranked, a guy like Nick Calabrese or Lenny Patrick, say Lenny Patrick was, was much was much higher in the inner circles. He was dealing in much higher power circles than a guy like Nick Calabrese. He, he, he really he got his start. He was a young guy in uh, he, around 1912 or so. He was born by 15. He dropped out of school. Uh, he was robbing banks, which was the thing to do in the uh, early 30s, and he did. Uh, he got arrested. He did uh, did about eight years in prison. He comes out in the 40s, and he was a Jewish guy. So he in the Jewish neighborhoods, he started uh, 
he learned early on about gambling. And so he started gambling and uh, bookmaking, he was setting odds like a lot of the uh, young Jewish gamblers. And he got in tight on the West Side with uh, a lot of the gangsters there. Uh, he met Gene Connor pretty young, right? And uh, Milwaukee Phil, Alaricio, all that West Side crowd. And he made really good connections really young. I mean, from the 40s, this, this guy was getting tied in with who, would be, who was even then the upper echelon of the, the outfit. So in the 40s, this guy is meeting the top of the pops in the outfit, and he's building up his own gambling crew. Uh, it, at some point, he, he kills a couple of bookmakers who become competition. Uh, three or four different other Jewish bookmakers step up, and, and Lenny Patrick has no problems with, with taking out the competition throughout the 50s until he becomes the top guy. Uh, at some point, the, the uh, Jewish population migrates farther up north. Patrick gets permission from his overseers, and he then moves up north. He has good connections, too, with Gus Alex, who I think uh, Gussie Alex was right under a guy named Murray Humphreys, and he was the political arm of the outfit. During the, the 70s, when everybody talks about Joey Iappa or Tony Cardo, I think people forget that there was really it was a triumvirate ruling the outfit. It was... Uh, Cardo, Ayapa, and Gus Alex was, was those were the top three. Gus Alex was no less important because he controlled all the politics, not only in Chicago but nationwide. Now, now Gus Alex was he was he uh, uh, Greek? He was a Greek guy. Yes, right. I noticed that here in Kansas City, there were a couple of Greek guys that were kind of close associates. They never seemed to have quite that important a place, but uh, in the hierarchy. But Chicago is a much more diverse city uh, than uh, Kansas City, anyhow, with those different ethnic backgrounds from uh, around the Mediterranean as well as uh, Poland, and, and it just real. Uh, uh, Honeypot, honeypot. I think uh, a drawing, a drawing card for for ethnic ethnic melting, background. Melting, yeah, yeah. A melting pot. Melting there pot. we go. Melting pot. Good. <laughs> it's, it's, it's one of those words. It's always amazed me much more, much more so than Kansas City. We're so western out here, uh, and, and not a lot of uh, that kind of. We only got one real old ethnic neighborhood, and that's Italian. Uh, right. We, uh, we don't really even have a Jewish neighborhood particularly anymore and uh, never did have much of one. But uh, so he, he was really big into politics and he was he ran he had all the connections uh, with, Alex, yeah. downtown with the counselor's row down there. Was did he get involved in that with the Operation Gray Lord? Was he still around then? Paul, go ahead. You know a little bit more about uh, about well, uh, the just like Lenny Patrick, he started out as what they called then a torpedo, killed people for the mob, and and grew to, uh, yeah, she was sure around in the Counselor Road days, but he avoided that, Operation Grey Lord. He avoided indictment. Gus Alex, born Gustav Alexis, was probably the number two man in the Chicago mob about 1972, hmm. wanted to retire, but they they had such a shortage of capable leaders that they couldn't let him go. So he was very, very important in the mob and probably the most important non-Italian in nationwide that I can think of. Country, yeah. You can't you cannot run a successful organized crime family in a big city without having that political connection. You just it isn't not gonna work at all. You gotta have that political fixer in there. 
help people get contracts and they have some kind of businesses and help people connect with the court system with the right people as well as the licensing with the city and city inspectors and and Chicago had that stuff wired and and all the other big cities pretty well had it wired they had it wired here until in the 60s really there was something to be said for his is just in an operating capacity, his, his smarts too. You look at the, the, the dearth of leadership, like Paul said, in the 70s, you know, what led to IEPA coming in, in into power. And then we sort of kicked this topic around amongst ourselves. But IEPA was never seen as really the, the, the heir apparent. He just sort of was the last guy standing. But they needed a guy like Alex, who was as smart as he was, because Cardo wanted to stay in the background. And you know, Alex did too, but one of those two had to be present and let Iapa run the street stuff. He was sort of the he was the muscle guy. He had a big, strong crew, and he would he would sort of run the day to day. But you needed to have somebody with those smarts like Gussie Alex who could who could really handle. He, he was a really intelligent, really capable guy. So he did politics, but he also dealt with a lot of lot of interrelations with things. He, he didn't. I mean, he was he was capable of of laying the hammer down. Maybe not to the extent wasn't wasn't as heavy handed maybe as I ever was on a day to day basis. I think he was a much more capable, much more intelligent individual. So by the sixties, uh, your boy Lenny Patrick is uh, making a lot of money. I see from your notes here from his sports book. He he seemed to really gravitate to that sports book. He must have had a bunch of sub agents working for him too, and he had a he had all the Jewish gambling too. Is what, what I understood you saying. Yeah, he bet some big winners in the Super Bowl of nineteen sixty nine when the Jets beat the Colts. That was. God, if you'd have picked that one that had a lot of money on it, you could have made some money. Now, normally these mob guys don't gamble. They like to just balance the books. He must have liked to gamble a little bit too. Well, in, in Chicago, you had uh, the the upper echelon of the mob. They were hardcore gamblers. Tony Accardo said if he died at, at, at the gambling table, he'd die a happy man. Uh, they all – they were very serious players, loved to gamble. I, I happened to own some pages from Sam Giancana's betting diary, but he kept records every day of his really? and outs and uh, in his own handwriting. So it was not uncommon for these guys to be real, real serious players, even though you would think they wouldn't be sampling the merchandise they did. And they all, uh, they did fairly well. Of course, when you know which horse is going to come in first, <laughs> pretty easy to win. <laughs> that was always uh, Frank Rosenthal's uh, value to the outfit up there was he was a hell of a handicapper. And he was always giving them winners, whether it be horses or, or sports events. He was. And the funny thing is Rosenthal is the most famous handicapper out of Chicago. But he really learned his trade from someone called Donald the Wizard of Oz, Odds. Angelini, who was a genuine sports handicapping genius, a uh, very quiet guy, gentle guy, but uh, very much a made member of the outfit that made them millions and millions of dollars. And, and that's where Lefty learned to really to learn his craft as well. Interesting. I didn't know that. So by the 80s, I'll go up through the 60s, he's making a lot of money. Oh, this is an interesting thing. This, uh, you know any more about this? That Lenny and his partner Dave Yaris extorted $300,000 from Alan Dorfman. That is, that is, how'd that come down? Oh, sure. They did this to a lot of places, car dealerships, pizza parlors. Uh, they would simply say, you know, listen, you want to keep in business, you're going to pay us this amount of money. 
and this would come out in later years in the Gus Alex trial, the Carlisi trial, uh, that, that they would make a threat to firebomb the place, you know, or you're going to have an accident, uh, put a bomb underneath someone's car, not meant to kill him, but meant to scare him. And that's how they made a lot of money. You know, Lenny Patrick was not just a, he did not just a sports book guy. He was, he admitted, admitted to killing seven people. So there are at least seven that we know of. And by the sixties, late sixties, early seventies, Lenny Patrick was a capo in the Chicago mob mm-hmm. in all but name. Right. He wasn't Italian. So they wouldn't give him the name, but Chicago operates a little differently than we realize it's decentralized. It's one family, but each street crew operates almost like its own family. And the capos of these mm-hmm. street crews have enormous power and discretion. And Lenny Patrick was one of those five or six guys that ran the day-to-day operations of the Chicago mob. He was really up there. So that, uh, that murder attempt on Alan Dorfman several years before he was actually murdered, that was probably uh, this Lenny Patrick's extortion attempt to make it look like somebody was about to get him. Sure sounds like it. I always wondered what the deal was like that because he was such a big money maker for him. They must have, uh, they must have gotten together and said, you know, we can we can get some money off this dude. I'm sure he had to share it. And and, and uh, I know we had a guy in Kansas City put a bomb. It wasn't extended to really hurt anybody, but he put a bomb in a guy's car, or he had two guys do it. And then he goes back around. He said, you know, he said I know those boys that did that. They're mad at you, but I can calm them down. I can take care of this. You know, we could work something out. And, of course, you know, the guy paid him like 5000 bucks, and, and, and he told the guys that he had sent over there with the bomb to do it. So that's probably what happened on with Dorfman. Well, and that's what happened with a lot of Lenny Patrick's victims, like Ray Hare or the car dealer. They, they'd go in there and demand 300000 And then Lenny Patrick would come in and say, hey, I heard you got troubles from so-and-so. I can iron it out. I'll go to him. Listen, the best I can do for you is I got to cut down to 125. <laughs> that's that's all I can do to save you and your family, and, and that's how they get the 125. And yeah. of course, Lenny sent the first guy in the first place. Right? Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. It's a it's a cold, cruel world. You know, as as Paul said about decentralization. I mean, it could be. You know, Dorfman was under guys like Lombardo. Uh, uh, guy like Lenny is is running his own crew. It wouldn't be unheard of for them to just kidnap him, uh, you know, for them to be operating so independently, they just grab him and they're not going to hurt him per se, but Lombardo's guys weren't watching. They're like, all right, just pay him. They know he's not going to get hurt. Just give him some money. Who cares? Yeah. It's all going to the same place. <laughs> yeah. You know, just right. one crew striking against there. another. Yeah. And Lenny's <laughs> kicking upstairs to Gussie Alex. Gussie mm-hmm. Alex is kicking upstairs to Iupa and Accardo. So just like Camilla said, it all goes the same way. And and if if Lombardo complains because his man Dorfman got hurt a little bit or or got some money taken from him, then Iupa has, just tells Lombardo, "Hey, you know, don't worry about it. Should have been watching him better. Yeah, don't worry about it." <laughs> and he's gonna say, "Okay, I understand. Forget about it. There we go. Forget about it. Not often you get a chance to use that, is there? Not not very often. <laughs> that was perfect. <laughs> so Cam, tell us a little more about. Lenny Patrick, he's gonna he's working with Gus Alex now, and by the eighties, like Paul said, yeah, and I think this is where we're getting into Paul's territory. But I think it really needs to be be stressed that in Chicago, like he said, like Paul said, you you can't get that capo term, but it really you can 
just like with, with Gussie Alex, you can be extremely high ranked and not be Italian. It, it really, with the exception of being called a capo, there's no real difference between, I mean, I guess there is between Italian members and non-Italian members, but the, the upper echelon, the leadership was, was Gussie Alex, who was not an Italian. Before that, there was, there was Curly Humphreys, who was Welsh. And I, I mean, you can't find anybody who's higher ranked than he was, except a guy like Rico or Ricardo. Yeah. So Lenny Patrick being Jewish really doesn't, wouldn't curtail his ability to, to be as high up as he was. So uh, what we see here, and, and I'll kick it to Paul, but one thing we really need to stress is that Lenny Patrick wasn't just some, some Jewish bookmaker who knew a few guys and he rolled on the mob. Lenny Patrick was, as Paul said, he was a capo who happened to be Jewish, wasn't, you know, like Paul said, he wasn't called a capo, but he had all the bells and whistles, all the frills of being a capo for 30 years and had 60 years experience in the outfit. And this is the information he had at his disposal. It's kind of interesting. He even threatened his own brother for money that his brother owed him, his brother Mike. It says here, your notes here, Cam says, Patrick started threatening Mike's son-in-law, Lenny's niece, niece's husband. I mean, is that, was, was that what it was, Paul? I was trying to follow the story and about was cold. what he did to his family. He was, it's awful things. It was. Yeah, yeah, there was not a good relationship there. Those things did happen. And it, when, when Lenny Patrick started testifying, or there was rumor that he was, the outfit made a big mistake by planting a bomb under his daughter's BMW. Oh, thinking that would intimidate Lenny. Lenny didn't give a damn about his daughter. They didn't speak; <laughs> hadn't spoken for years. God. So Man. now that was something that you wouldn't expect. Carter was was so old and and in, in ill health by that time uh, that that you would you would not be surprised to see that, but. Cardo would not have approved of intimidating a family member like that. Yeah, I, I've never heard of that. I, I've never seen it. I, I've never really heard of it before. That's quite amazing. Sounds like something Mad Sam DiStefano would do. He would, you know, they 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 claim that he killed his own brother. He and his other brother killed uh, uh, the the third brother who was a dope addict. I don't know. Well, yeah, and then the, the first brother killed Mad Sam. Oh, that's right. That's right. He did. He, he and Tony Spilatro was the ones that killed Mad Sam in the end. Sam yeah. killed his brother and the other brother killed him. They put the diss in dysfunctional families, don't they? <laughs> yeah, those Distefanos had some problems. Oh, boy. Let's go to family therapy to the Distefanos. <laughs> or Lenny Patrick. Murray Povich looks civilized. That's right. <laughs> yeah, really. Yeah, Jerry Springer. Yeah, Jerry yeah. Springer time here, dude. <laughs> yeah. Jerry Springer with real guns. <laughs> yes, real thing. Stefano <laughs> <laughs> had a problem with his wife's. He brought a guy home and forced him to have sex with her at gunpoint. Yeah, yeah. He, he was not a good at relationships. <laughs> that story so far out there, I, I, I have trouble believing that, but <laughs> they say it happened. <laughs> I believe there's a police report on it because the guy really? sure he was going to get arrested for rape. Oh, but darn. Well, I figured there must be some basis in some kind of a document somewhere because it, yeah, I've, I'd seen it so many different places, more than just talk. Pretty sure that's legit. <laughs> so yeah, what was the lead? What uh, what was the lead up to his his arrest and everything, Paul? How did they? Uh, 
Well, it, it goes back a ways to about 1986 when Joey Aupa, who was the uh, boss of the outfit, went to prison. And uh, in his place was a little known, seldom mentioned mafia boss by the name of Sam Wings Carlisi. You didn't see anything about Carlisi in the paper. They didn't even, as late as 1983, the press didn't even have a picture of the guy. But he had been Ayupa's uh, driver and, and bodyguard for years and had learned the trade, and Ayupa anointed him as the boss of the mob. The press was chasing Joe Ferriola around and didn't know what Carlisi was doing. But Carlisi was running things, and he got – a little concerned about somebody by the name of Jeeps Dodino, an elderly mobster. They were afraid that Jeeps was going to flip, which Jeeps was not going to do and had not done. But Carlisi was caught uh, saying, well, if that Jeeps doesn't, if that Jeeps flips, a lot of people are going to get hurt, including, including me. So Carlisi gave the word to kill Jeeps Dodino. And that was passed down to Gus Alex, passed down to Lenny Patrick. Lenny Patrick passed it down to Mario Renone, who's been in the press recently because he was released on a compassionate release from prison yeah. for COVID. Renone went to, he was supposed to go and open the door to Dedino's apartment and start this process of knocking him down. But he, when he's there, he noticed a couple other outfit hitters are following him. Ooh. He gets spooked, and he thinks he might be also the target of the hit. So he runs to the FBI. Renon then flips. He later unflips. He was famous for this flipping and unflipping type of thing. Well, that leads to catching Lenny Patrick on a wire, and Lenny Patrick gets caught and is brought in. At the time, he's in his late 70s. Very powerful in the Chicago mob reports directly to Gus Alex, who's right at the top. He he's uh, reports directly to Sam Carlisi, and so Lenny Patrick wears a wire on Gus Alex, and gets him to talk about payoffs and extortions. Ray Hara Nissan was one of them. We mentioned it earlier. Pizza parlors, real estate, Cacciatore real estate, um, grocery stores. He gets all this on a wire with Gussie Alex. And Gussie Alex gets picked up and is indicted. And uh, he had not, to my knowledge, correct me if I'm wrong about this, Camelus, I don't think Gussie had ever been prosecuted before for anything serious. No, they, they didn't even have mug shots of him. That's that, that, that famous mug shot that, uh, that uh, uh, Romer had was because he happened to be in L.A. The L L.A. cops couldn't find any pictures of him, so they, they, had, they had a 20-year-old parking ticket on him, and they, uh, they decided to arrest him on it just so they could have a photo for the mob books out there. They, they broke into his, his mother-in-law's home. Basically, they got a warrant stormed in the house just to get photos of him because none existed. Yeah. So they, they had that's, nothing on him. That's how elusive the, the, this guy was. But it was a major, major arrest for for the uh, Chicago outfit. The, since the days uh, uh, when they got Aupa, they didn't get anybody that was this high up until they got Gussie Alex. Now, he bonded out. He was allowed to return to his Lakeshore Drive condo. I, I posted a photo on Kings, Killers, and Clowns yesterday of Gussie Alex leaving the MCC, the Metropolitan Correctional Center, 
with Carl Walsh, his lawyer, who, by the way, he shared with Tony Accardo, very successful outfit lawyer. And he was facing serious uh, RICO charges, set to trial in front of, um, oh gosh, I can't think of the judge's name right now. It escapes me. But uh, luckily for me, I happened to be clerking for another judge at the time of this trial. And so I got to sit and watch it next to uh, Antoinette Giancana, the mafia princess. <laughs> oh, my she God. came to the trial. Set, set she the sure trial did, along day. with lots of other interested wow. parties. They, they do do that. I had to testify once and, and half the, the family was there when I, when I walked up to testify against one of the, uh, the mob boss's brother, actually, Tony Ripe Savella. It's kind of intimidating, actually. They're all staring at you, stared at you in and out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, Antoinette, had she was a colorful person, not exactly. Uh, well, she talked like a sailor, and she had a lot of things to say about Lenny Patrick. I'll tell you, it was really interesting commentary. <laughs> <laughs> interesting is probably a diplomatic word. <laughs> yeah, it would be like sitting next to Castro at uh, JFK's funeral. <laughs> <laughs> They're trying to guess Alex based on what Lenny Patrick on his testimony. Was this a, a, a RICO trial for, for just a variety of things? Racketeering, extortion, murder? Yes, yes. Uh, absolutely right. And Gus Alex was, you know how these RICO prosecutions work, Gary. The federal government spent years getting uh, wiretaps, nailing down witnesses, prepping Lenny Patrick in secret. And by the time it got to trial, of course, Gus Alex put on the old sickly old man act. Yeah. And uh, came shuffling into the courtroom every day with his half glasses on and his cane and he was very friendly to me, always spoke, was always friendly, uh, even though I was a nobody in that courtroom. I was working in another courtroom. And uh, he, he handled it with a lot of dignity. I give him credit. He, he treated everybody with courtesy. He, his defense, of course, was that he was retired and he hadn't done any of these things. And Lenny Patrick couldn't be believed. Lenny Patrick admitted on the stand to the commission of seven murders mistakenly believing he had been granted immunity. Now, how you make that mistake, I have no idea. Yeah, usually at those feds, they, uh, you you make a proffer, and then you get some kind of uh, piece of paper that tells that, you know, as long as you are totally cooperative with them, then you will not be prosecuted. But it's written down on a piece of paper. It, it's like a contract almost. So I, he must not have had that. Those guys are so damn sharp about that, too. Oh, yeah. Lenny, I, I don't know who his lawyer was. Never saw a lawyer for Lenny. I, I think he was so desperate to see that he did not spend the rest of his life in jail. And, and that played in the Carlisi trial later as well. He was willing to do, say, anything just mm-hmm. to salvage the possibility that he wouldn't go to jail for the rest of his life. Was that his motivating factor was just to stay out of jail? Is that why he why he flipped to begin with? Or was it yeah, I mean, sometimes you see, like... like uh, as an old man didn't want to... Yeah, I, I don't think it was a Frank Collada situation where they said, hey, Lenny, you know, someone's mm-hmm. out to kill you. There's a contract on your life. We'll protect you. But I, I don't think it was that. I think it was he desperately wanted to get out. By the time I met him in the Carlisi trial, he was 78 years old. Yeah. 
he really had no future if he didn't cooperate with the feds. Gussie Alex was, of course, convicted and sent to federal prison along with Nick Geo and some others, and Gussie never made it out. So and that was that trial would have been 91, 92, the Gus Alex. And then yes. the and he was originally Jeeps was picked up in 86. Just speaking to how long those RICO trials take to build it. Jeeps was 86 or 87, and that trial was in 92. So yeah, they take a long time. I mean, for the entire investigation, of course, Patrick would have been picked up in 89 or so, 88. But yeah, that, that entire investigation, those, like you said, those RICO trials take years to build. That's why they don't lose, as you and I were talking about once before. Right. It, it's a it's a very difficult thing to defend against. So he also testified against this Sam Wings Carlisi that nobody had really ever heard of unless you're really, you know, a, a student of the Chicago outfit. Carlisi was the boss of the outfit. Oh, so, at this point in time, he was the boss. Yeah, he was. As soon as Iapa went away. I forgot. I forgot. I, yeah, Iupa was just gone away. Okay. All right. I'll, I, I stand corrected on that. Uh, Carlisi was the boss, and Gus Alex reported directly to Carlisi. But Carlisi was such a stealth guy. There's a, a famous uh, photograph, surveillance photograph of Gus Alex that was taken and, and uh, used by the federal government, and it's it's it was identified as... Gus Alex meeting with unknown man. <laughs> well, that was Sam Carlisi. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I, as soon as I saw the photograph, of course, I knew it was Sam Carlisi, but I had a reason to know. <laughs> and a lot of people didn't. The guy was just incredible at keeping a low profile. So did, would Lenny Patrick, had he worn a wire on Alex? And, and yes. did, So they had some good uh, audio tape to play for the jury. Yeah, yeah. And then, now, now, they didn't have that with Carlisi, but that was a more traditional RICO mafia trial where he was the boss and he was being charged with heading up a street crew that committed acts of extortion, bombings, intimidation, things of that nature. Jimmy Marcello was his underboss. Yeah, little Jimmy yeah, Marcello. Little Jimmy Marcello was right under. So they made, they had some predicate acts of, of extortion and murder. Too. They really did. And one of them, uh, some of them were a comedy of errors. You know, you think of the mob, and you think of they're these efficient killing machines, but these guys really weren't that. Uh, <laughs> for example, the Oak Street Theater, they wanted extortion money. They wanted, uh, they wanted uh, control of the theater. They wanted their people put into the projectionist union positions. The Oak Street Theater wasn't cooperating. So Carlisi gave the order to Patrick to, to firebomb the, the place. So Patrick goes out, throws a Molotov cocktail on the roof. It goes out. No fire. <laughs> so they come back and they throw up some dynamite and blasting caps. It's a dud. Nothing happens. But they tried a third time. Never did get a decent fire out of the Oak Street Theater, but they did get a few years in federal prison out of it. <laughs> so it was like the gang that couldn't shoot straight. So Patrick, he commits this crime, and he does it at the behest of Gus Alex, who has been told by... Sam Carlisi to do this. Yes. And and it's to get this money that will go then back up through the chain from Gus Alex back up to Sam Carlisi. And, and did they have anybody else to kind of testify as to the, the, 
you know, the hierarchy and how this worked, that if if this happened, then Carlisi would end up with the money. And if something like this happened, then Carlisi had to be, even though they may not have him on a tape ordering it, they may not have a witness saying he ordered it, but you got somebody who can say, yeah, if this happened, then he ordered it and he would get some of that money. Is that how that worked? Yeah, that's how it worked. And there are photographs of the meetings of the various different, uh, there's a, a famous photograph of Carlisi, Marcello, Rocco Infelice, and Joe Ferriola all meeting in the Addison Venture Store parking lot the day after Tony Scalatro's body was found. Ah. Things like that. But it's funny you would ask about how they knew Carlisi was involved because there was a motion in limine, and you know what that is, Gary, but for your listeners, in advance, the defense lawyers asked the judge to rule that we couldn't use the name mob or outfit <laughs> yeah. or mafia. That's a pretty that, common. <laughs> yeah, it's prejudicial. And and we're not trying anybody about because they're involved in the outfit. This was strictly this Carlisi street crew. And Lenny Patrick knew about this and was instructed very carefully not to use those terms. Uh, he knew that he also had to get a conviction here. He was spending the rest of his life in prison. So one of the assistant U.S. attorneys asked Lenny Patrick while he was testifying. Now, Mr. Patrick, just because Sam Carlisi told you to do something, why would you go and throw a bomb just because Carlisi told you to? And every defense lawyer started to jump up at the same time, but before a single one of them, and he was quick for a 78-year-old man, grabbed the microphone and held it to his face. I said, the mob! (laughs) 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 It was pandemonium. That's a good one. Oh, gosh. I got, um, I have a picture here of the, just before that actually took place. If I can figure out how to share my screen with you, if that's okay. Yeah. I'll I'll show you what that picture looks like. I'm not, it may take me a few minutes. So we just keep talking. Sorry, okay. Yeah. <laughs> but, she is um, your boss at a mob. Well, that was a pretty dramatic. Dramatic trial moment there. You don't usually, usually those trials are just boring, boring, minutia, detail, asking the same questions over and over again <laughs> after you want to go to sleep and then you get something like that, something good. <laughs> well, and that was so wonderful. I mean, I just wish that I oh could uh, recorded that moment for you. <laughs> but all of the high dollar mob defense attorneys <laughs> in Chicago have never moved so fast in their lives it was it was so amazing <laughs> the way that they all jumped up and it, just, it was pandemonium and of course everyone in the crowd was talking and uh, oh oh my gosh i just i wish that i could have uh i could have uh, had the transcript but it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have captured it really it was just yeah. it was just unbelievable it was a real real scary moment for everybody what's going to happen next we don't know uh, but but the judge ultimately ruled it wasn't prejudicial. The jurors weren't stupid. They yeah. knew what we're talking about was yeah. organized crime. Had no and idea before he said it. No, no, no. It wouldn't have. Everyone's <laughs> name ended in a vowel, you know. Yeah. So we moved on to the next part. And uh, that was actually, for me, was a highlight of the trial. Lenny mm-hmm. Patrick's testimony uh, was wonderful. And he was a, an amazing and scary individual, for sure. Even more interesting was they had... After Lenny Patrick, they had wiretaps of the collections that actually his this this crew would go on. 
And one of these poor uh, bastards that owed money to the crew, they sent a guy by the name of Tony the Hatchet Chiaramonte to collect from him. And they wired the guy up. And I got to give the guy credit. He had the courage to do it. They went into a restaurant. The hatchet grabbed him and took him back into the kitchen. The guy's on a live wire. The FBI is listening. And the hatchet grabbed this guy by the throat, lifted him and set him on a hot griddle. And started stabbing him with a fork, telling him that he wanted his money. And he wanted it right now. And the guy's screaming and saying, don't choke me. Don't stab me with this. Said, I want my money. You'll have it by five o'clock and lots of real colorful epithets. (laughs) You know, you can imagine. Yes, lots of uh, (laughs) F-bombs. Oh, boy. And, you know, this guy, this hatchet sitting 10 feet away from me. And I thought, boy, I'm glad that he's polite to me every day in court. (laughs) I'll tell you what, that's a pretty ruthless thing. And the FBI, Gary, is so funny. The FBI didn't interrupt. They were building a case. They weren't going to come in and interrupt. (laughs) So they just let this guy get his backside scorched and have a bunch of holes poked in him with a fork because it would make good evidence. That's some cold agents there. (laughs) Oh, man. The jury, jury, you could see, they they were starting to squirm and move around in their chair, you know, shift in their seat. Yeah, Uh, They were just getting so uncomfortable. That was where everything kind of shifted right there. You know, it's funny. There's a couple instances of that. The guy who would eventually kill Tony the Hatch, uh, uh, that uh, Tony Calabrese, another guy wore a wire on him. And they let him go in there wearing a wire as Tony Calabrese beat the hell out of this guy, made him strip down. He didn't find the wire. And Tony Calabrese, the guy who killed Tony the Hatch, is also caught on wire beating the hell out of somebody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> the world of unusual coincidences. That Tony Calabrese, didn't he just die or something? Yeah. He asked for a presidential pardon and he didn't get it. He, had to yeah. he did not get it, unfortunately. <laughs> he did not but, get it. But... It was interesting how he was foist upon his own petard, as they say in French. You know, the That's same a good one. <laughs> that, that happened. To Tony the Hatchet happened to Tough Tony, his killer. Yeah. Live by the sword, right? Yeah, that's true. That is true. <laughs> happened to more than one. It really did. So, oh. you know, Lenny Patrick was extremely dangerous, uh, beady-eyed, cold, ice cold. Not one of these mobsters that had a gregarious, friendly side. Sam Carlisi and Gus Alex were both extremely courteous. Both of them you could have a conversation with. You could see them as fathers and grandfathers, as well as businessmen. But not Lenny Patrick. The guy was ice cold and frightening, and just being around him, was uncomfortable. I don't know if you've ever been around someone like that. I have. I have. It's scary. I know. They look at you. They don't really look at you. They look through you. And and if like it's like you're a bug that if they needed to squash you, they would squash you and just move on and not even think twice. I, I know. They got these soulless eyes. Yeah, yeah. That's exactly right, Gary. It's just he was like that. So was Tony the Hatchet and so was little Jimmy Marcello. Just terrifying guys that yeah. uh, it, it was it was uncomfortable really to sit in the courtroom with them where Carlisi you could sit and have a beer with a guy and and have a good conversation Gus Alex would probably scotch you know yeah. um, <laughs> but uh very very genial guys and you can see why they had the political connections that yeah. the mob needed because certainly if they depended on the ability of uh 
Tony the Hatchet or Lenny Patrick to make political <laughs> connections, they were getting nowhere fast. Right. Of course, that That's, wasn't Lenny Patrick's role. Yeah, yeah. That is interesting, the uh, the division of labor in a mob family like that and, and the types of personalities that, that occupy those different positions. You know, you got the more genial, uh, hail fellow, well-met type that needs to butter up the politicians and, and uh, slip them a little money and not be too threatening because the politicians will just run the other way. And then you got the guys like Lenny Patrick out there when you need some money collected or need somebody intimidated. So it's uh, there's room for everybody. It's structured like corporation. Yeah. You know what the amazing thing about uh, Lenny Patrick is that when he was about to testify, the attorneys for Carlisi, who I would eventually go to work for after I was done with the federal government, they filed a motion to bar Lenny Patrick from testifying. And when that came across my desk, I was fascinated because that motion had with it a videotape, a documentary produced by Cuban TV, which you have to question the uh, (laughs) source right there, but a documentary that named Lenny Patrick as the gunman from the grassy knoll who Uh, shot John F. Kennedy. I'll be damned. (laughs) I'll be damned. I'd never heard that before in my life. And I'd been a little bit of a student of the Kennedy assassination. It's the third outfit guy named as the, as the gunman, right? That, yeah, be yeah, the third yeah. Marshall Stefano yeah. was named. Yeah. I, I've heard I've heard Roselli, and I've heard, you know, Kane, who everybody knows, yep. but Caifano now. Okay, so that's four. Cafano, yeah. Yeah. four. All right. That's four. Well, Marshall Caifano told Red Wimet that he was there. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't know what that's worth. It's yeah. about up. It's up there with uh, Cuban TV. <laughs> yeah, my money. My money's on Richard Kane. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, it was very interesting because the response of the federal government was, "Judge, this is nonsense," and here's how we're going to prove it to you: we're going to bring you all the sealed Kennedy assassination files. You can read through them, and if you see anything in there at all that implicates Lenny Patrick, we can discuss it. So guess who got the assignment of reading oh, all those oh. files? It'd be kind of fun if you're just doing it for fun, but when you had to do it for work and you got to really go through it, uh, that would be boring. It's like putting Oliver Stone's JFK on repeat for 36 hours. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was a long weekend uh, and then some. At least they weren't redacted where they didn't have all that redaction to go over. No, no, nothing like that. I wasn't, uh, and then black, <laughs> called black. Yeah. <laughs> no, nothing like that. That really makes it boring. Who really did it, Paul? <laughs> yeah, who really did I, it? I'm going to tell you. And after that, I am, Camillus, I have to kill you. But <laughs> yeah. I know it'll be satisfying. <laughs> the funny thing really is about it, I can't, obviously, I can't say what was in those files, but I can tell you that there was nothing in there that I hadn't read somewhere else. Somewhere in the newspapers, yeah. Yeah, it's the government's obsession with secrecy that fuels yeah. these things. There, and, I've, and I have never had access to any secret files before. I just read the books that you and I pick up at the airport or whatever. Yeah. And there was nothing in there that shocked me at all. Uh, and obviously, the judge allowed Lenny Patrick to testify and did not allow the defense to argue that he had killed JFK. So you can draw your own conclusions from that. It was creative. You ever pulled that one out in court, Paul? I've tried a couple times. I, uh, <laughs> the key killed JFK defense. That's right. Yeah. He took the Lindbergh baby defense. You know. Cheers. Sometimes you just have to throw in the kitchen sink. That's right. So that was a that was a great moment. And Lenny Patrick. Uh, the funny thing about it is, 
if, if someone said that about you, Camelus, if, if I said, Judge, Camelus Robinson shot JFK, what would your reaction be? Just, I don't know how I would respond. I would just, <laughs> be like a deer in the headlights, huh? <laughs> you would re- the point is, ridiculous. you would have some reaction, right? Yeah. yeah. Lenny Patrick was a sheet of ice. Really? There was absolutely no reaction in his face whatsoever. It didn't stun him, didn't bother him. He didn't think it was funny. No reaction oh, at all. Just like ice. And that that but that was his demeanor. Um, he had that kind of a deer in the headlights look, but a very, very dangerous, like a deer with 12-inch claws. Uh, and, and didn't bother him one bit, and he got n- zero reaction. Yeah. I've seen, you know, I've seen some of the pictures you post of him, and it is it is like y'all say. I mean, he's just got those dead eyes, and he looks, you know. He's just – it doesn't look – you know, he looks like an old – just like an old guy, but then you look at his face, and he's just like – there's that glare. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, kind of like a, a – a, a, Kind of like Carmine Galente, just just looks like sort of an old grandfatherly until you get up between the yeah. nose and the forehead, and it's just like, oh Jesus! Yeah, there's no soul there. Oh, no. yeah. Um, you know, I hate to hate to judge somebody's soul, but as far as I can <laughs> sometimes tell, sometimes they're asking for it. Right, right, right. You know, sometimes <laughs> you're right. I don't wear my soul judgment on my sleeve, but some people do. After the sixth or seventh murder, at some point, it gets tiresome. <laughs> yeah, really. There was this story about him that I read. So there was this father and son, this, this family-owned pizza place. And this kid stops. Lenny's Lenny's car is stuck in the road or something, maybe in the snow. And, Paul, you can correct me if I get it wrong. So this kid stops to help push Lenny's car. Lenny notices that the kid works for the pizza place. And they get to talking. Lenny says, here, let me give you five bucks for pushing my car. The kid's like, no, 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 I'm happy to do it. So Lenny looks at the kid driving off. He's like, well, hell, if he's got plenty of money and he owns his business. So Lenny takes it upon himself to go and extort their business. (laughs) (laughs) He extorts the family. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's an opportunity for him. (laughs) Kid doesn't want my money. I'll sure as hell take his. That's who we're talking about. I mean, you know, you've probably all heard the story about Aupa and how some poor teenage kid pushed a cart into his car at Dominic's. No, I didn't hear that one. What happened? Had the kid's legs broken. Ah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, I mean, that's who we're dealing with here. And that's Lenny bad. Patrick was every bit as bloodthirsty in that story, Camilla said. That sounds exactly like Lenny Patrick. <laughs> it's all about what can you do for Lenny Patrick. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it was just, it's really unpleasant guy. <laughs> oh, horrible man. And, and I was in a courtroom full. Of, first of all, we had the eight or nine defendants and, and all the uh, hangers on and the family and everything. And Lenny Patrick stood out as just plain the worst guy here, <laughs> even compared to Tony, the hatchet whose who's nickname alone yeah. says enough. I mean, the guy put a, a man on a hot fry griddle. On uh, tape. But Patrick I, was scarier. And I think what, Paul, and you've spoken to this, and I think it definitely makes your point, is like this was a lot of people, like we said, looked to family secrets because that was the first made guy. But in this trial, from from because of Lenny Patrick, you lose the brains of the outfit. Then you lose the boss of the outfit. You lose the underboss. And, and because of the division of power, you had you had Carlisi and Marcello. But then, you know, on the other side, uh, the 
sort of the official one was you had Fariola, the street boss Fariola and his guy uh, uh, in Felice, and they both get knocked out in separate, separate instances, and Felice did anyway. Yep. Uh, but so this was the entire upper echelon of, of the outfit, basically, taken out in one in one swipe. And the, the outfit after that, it was no longer a single sort of a semi-pyramid organization. That was it. There was, after Carlisi, there was no central boss. I mean, after him, the individual who took over was like, well, we're going to do our own separate thing, and we're not going to be a single organization. I mean, that was, as I understood it, right, Paul? You know, Camelus, you, you can't state that strongly enough. I don't think people understand that as well. I think you put it about as well as anybody could that you took out Gus Alex, which was all the political connections. You took out Carlisi, who had some of those connections that went all the way back to the 60s. Uh, and he learned at Aupa's feet, who went back, of course, to the late 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, you took him out. So you took out the boss, the connection guy the the uh the driver and chauffeur for the boss and marcelo and an entire street crew the cicero street crew which was at that time the dominant street crew in the outfit another thing we don't think about is lenny patrick's crew yeah. was wiped out by yeah. this so you got two crews going down the boss the connection guy and and uh marcelo so it was devastating and after that like camilla's pointed out you had the successor to sam carlisi who somehow avoided getting indicted in this trial and did very minor time in the Rincon case. And he pretty much shut down his, his street crew and decentralized the outfit so that street crews no longer even had to do with each other. So this was really the end of the outfit that Al Capone created it was 1986 and, and excuse me, 1991, 1992 and Gus Alex and Sam Carlisi, End of story. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Family secrets was a bunch of, was, was a lot of remnants, but you notice it every, you know, it was, it was old activity for the most part. It was guys who had just gotten out of prison. Just think again, what was going on in 92. You've got the guys who are still in prison from straw man. You've got the entire, the entire first ward is gone from Gambat and, and Grade Lord. So, I mean, they, they, you know, and losing Gussie Alex. So that's it. Period. You've got, no, every, everybody's already in prison. Guys like Joey Lombardo were in prison. And uh, uh, Rocky and Felice, Rocco and Felice goes to prison. And, and that, that's it. When Ferriola died uh, later than that. But, you know, there it, it's gone. Uh, uh, Cardo just died as an old man who wasn't in any part active at all. But, you know, in the past, he would step in and, and pinch hit, even as he was retired. But at that point, he was no longer a factor. So... You know, like like Paul said, you've still got your street crews, and, and we're not saying that there's no mob-ish street crime, but they are no. It, it's not a single cohesive unit to meet together and have a single boss. Not that not not like it was. That's absolutely right, and Lenny Patrick is the one to take the credit or the blame, however you look at it, uh, for that. More much more significantly than what Nick Calabrese did. Yeah, and I mean, family secrets. You took down a boss who was little Jimmy Marcello, who had already been taken out in the Carlisi trial, and he was presiding over a very divided, weakened outfit. I think what family secrets did is it it solved a lot of murders, and it, it really gave a lot of people a lot of peace. And I think that beyond what we know about, I think there there's probably a lot more information behind the scenes that that. I think the family secrets probably closed a lot more books for the FBI than we're even aware of. Uh, 
that that's a feeling because I'm sure Nick Halbreeze knew a lot more than, than what pertained to that trial. And the FBI was able to close a lot of case files. Uh, so I think that that, that, tri- that trial did let them say, OK, you know, we've, we've gotten rid of a lot of the leadership. Here's a lot of the murders. We'll, you know, they let them sort of clean up a lot of the remainder. I don't mean, you know, not to take anything away. Family Secrets was what it was. But as far as they, the leadership was already, I, I think that when you think of the commission trial in New York, this fear city that just came out on, on uh, that is more akin to taking out the Carlisi, Marcello, and, Mar- and, uh, and uh, Gussie Alex. That, was, that would be more akin to the commission trial in New York than, than Family Secrets was. Really? Well, it's all changed, and and uh, there's still a little bit going on here in Kansas City, but not very much at all. Some of the old guys still meet, and I've got word that they meet at this one restaurant and talk. I, I don't really know what's going. I don't try to find out what's going on, but uh, but they're they still want to do a show. Yeah, I would do a show. Yeah, really. That was after Greylord and Gambat. They you know, they already were really you know hurting them. But boy, when they took this guy out, that was that had to be the final straw that broke the camel back, camel's back, and the mob. As I said earlier, you cannot operate without political connections. Uh, you just can't do it. Without that, you're basically a street gang. Yeah, and, and that's largely what the outfit is today. I think is is a street gang. The the, the sophisticated leaders have made so much money legitimately now. Yes. Why in the world would they take the risk? So you got the young guys that are basically gangbangers. Yeah, robbing robbing drug dealers and stuff like that's what they're doing. That's what they're doing in Kansas City. Robbing other robbing bookies. Somebody they know has a lot of cash money. They go rob them. They they killed one here a few years ago, and and I know they they killed several drug dealers in in the process. Uh, I mean, this one they just walked in and just shot him. <laughs> took his took his money and walked out. I mean, it was they got away with it, but it was amazing that. They're cold. The young guys are cold, but I don't think they'll ever graduate beyond that kind of crime anymore because they just that 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 era is gone. And I, you know, Camelus and I have talked about this. I think it's very legitimate to say that Sam Carlisi was the last boss of the outfit. Yeah, as we knew it from Capone on. Yeah, yeah, I agree. All right, well, Paul and Cam, this has been great. And uh, yeah. Paul, you got any last uh, words? been a real pleasure talking with you guys i enjoyed learning from you laughing with you and i really appreciate the opportunity all right well we like to make the mob fun tony the hatchet <laughs> really <laughs> quick little story about that i was i was working dog watch and the desk sergeant and this officer comes in he's telling about this horrible domestic violence thing that he had just brought to, i think the husband in on and the wife was all beat up and, and he just kind of looks off into space, and, he, and there's a song, and he says, you make love and fun. <laughs> <laughs> Got to have that gallows humor, man. <laughs> Bro, you get through the job. <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. Good night, Paul. Good night. Bye, Joe. Right. Thanks, Thanks guys. guys. Well, folks, thank you for listening and all your nice comments on the Apple Podcast Reviews, plus your nice comments on my YouTube channel, where I often put up the uh, at least the Zoom interviews so you can see what my guests look like uh, in real life. Uh, also, on our Facebook group, Gangland Wire Podcast, I, uh, I see a lot of really good compliments on that. I've got some great people that help put up really good content, so if you want more 
mob information than you can shake a stick at, go to Gangland Wire Podcast Facebook page, or actually it's a group. Remember that if you support the podcast with some donations, you'll get an invite to my live Zoom call, where we'll share stories, answer questions, and in general, have a good time. Don't forget to buy me a cup of coffee or a shot and a beer on Venmo on your Venmo app, or you can go to Gangland Wire, my website, ganglandwire.com, and donate. I have a donate page, and, and each uh, podcast that I put up has a pretty lengthy written blog piece about what the subject is, and at the bottom of that page, there's a way to donate. I have some fixed costs, and plus I'm raising some money for my next documentary, which is about the KC mob and the election fraud of 1946. I've already had to hire a film guy to do a couple of my interviews, and I have one more interview to film. Plus, some uh, I have an artist that I pay to do some illustrations for my movie. If you remember from Brothers Against Brothers or Gangland Wire, I use some illustrations in those. And by the way, you can rent those on Amazon for only $1.99. Or two ninety nine if you want the HD version. And finally, I have my book, Leaving Vegas, the true story of how FBI wiretaps ended mob domination of Las Vegas casinos. Now, that title is a mouthful. But in that book, you're going to find copies of a lot of the transcripts of the actual wiretaps. And if you get the Kindle version, I took those audios that I got out of the court files and link them to the book in the proper places. I have an explanation and then the actual audio wiretap, which I think is kind of unusual. So you can go to Amazon and get that book and get it in the Kindle version. Gangland Wire supports the Veterans Administration and their programs that help veterans with PTSD. You can call their hotline at 1-800-873-8255 and push 1. Or go to their website, www.gangland.com ptsd.va.gov. I hate saying that www. I left it out when I said something about gangland wire. You guys all know I can leave that out. Anyhow, thanks a lot for listening and uh, listen up next week. I try to put out one a week. Music provided by our good friend and super fan from Portland, Oregon, Casey McBride. Thanks, Casey.